0: Uh, Well, I'm going to give you an update um, before we get in the message. Uh, Last night was a council meeting. I'd asked for prayer on Sunday, uh, needing the wisdom of Solomon. And as I was leaving, I think second service, somebody came up to politic me on the issue. And I stopped him and I said, I asked for prayer, you know, because they were trying to sell me on their position. But it was, uh, and it's interesting to, to note this because folks wonder, you know, should Christians be in politics and um, through the efforts of so many to have the privilege to be elected, uh, this this whole thing occurred, and, and you need to hear this, this whole thing occurred with the Oakmont Senior uh, Living uh, Facility that they wanted to put in on Rolling Oaks Drive. It's uh, over by the Thousand Oaks Surgical Hospital, um, over by Borderline, in that area, and there's a cul-de-sac there. And it's a Young Set Club uh, that now has been shut down, and they wanted to put a... Over eighty thousand square foot facility there uh, to house close to ninety uh, senior citizens, twenty three of which would be in memory care for alzheimer 's um, and every day, what they call it the uh, silver tsunami, every day ten thousand uh, Americans go into assisted living facilities uh, it 's it's the what they call the pig and the python it 's It's the baby boomer generation that happened after the Second World War and all these kids that were born, and I'm the tail end of it. 64 was the last year, the baby boomers. And so this, you can almost see all these economic uh, barometers with this pig passing through the python as this generation of people is moving on. Uh, You know, they they bought their Harley Davidsons when they, you know, got a, then they bought their their first house and then they moved up to their McMansions and they got their Harley Davidsons and now they're going into rest homes. And um, there's a great need, the fastest growing segment of our population is senior citizens. And, and uh, uh, so we're looking at this, and a lot of people say that we're 15 years behind the curve because if we start building senior citizen centers now, in 15 years we're going to have uh, um, a huge vacancy rate uh, that, that there's going to be, uh, once this pig and the python passes, there's going to be no need for senior housing. So I'm looking at that and and the people that are in the city district, all the voters, these are the folks that vote for you, all basically wanted this facility because they wanted to retire in this facility. All the ones that live in the adjacent county land that have these four or five acre plots uh, didn't want it because it was going to obstruct their view and they're already upset about the Thousand Oaks uh, Surgical Hospital, which is a behemoth of a building. And so these folks in the county land put up all of these issues, you know, environmental issues and fire hazard and, and uh, parking issues and zoning ordinances. And, and the city had to resolve all those, and they went through an extensive study, and the city was pushing for it because it was obviously going to help the revenue. And all these other folks that were voting yes on it wanted it so they could retire in these. And it was going to be an upscale, like top 3% of income earners would be able to afford this luxury... Assisted living facility, and it was fifty fifty in the church of people that wanted it and people that didn 't want it in the community. It was uh, highly organized on both sides and last night the meeting went to midnight, and there were over sixty public comments at two minutes each, so do the math and sitting through each of these and they were compelling and touching and um, plus the inundated with emails and the like. And I had no idea how the rest of the council was going to vote. I was struggling over it. Um, really good cases on both sides. And really what it boiled down to is the folks in the county side didn't want to lose their view. And the folks on the city side wanted to have an assisted living facility. And that's, that's where the rub was. And um, praying over it, going through information, doing my own study, I came across something that convicted me. And I really felt like God showed me what to do and how to vote. So, I went into the meeting with this idea, and then, hearing the testimony of the folks that were for it, I started to move and I literally switched sides twelve times through this whole process and And yet, I had to hold to the conviction of what God had given me. Well, that was tested when the folks who were opposed to it uh, the ones that were in favor of it were very civil and polite and tender and sweet and elderly, and just touched you and you just knew you 'd get all their votes, and it was just precious. And then the ones who spoke against it were kind of caustic and they were they go over their time, which is annoying when you're there all night. And and then the last person to speak was just blatantly rude to the to to the mayor. Actually told him look at me. And I, I was stunned by his behavior. I, I just thought, what caustic behavior of a of a citizen of our community. I actually went up and told him to his face. And and I said, I'm about to switch my vote as a result of your action. And uh, and I went back at the break and I prayed and the Lord just gave me a conviction that this is and I am I'm, I'm not at liberty, it's a personal thing, and if I shared it with you, I'd have to list it. It was something on my own accord. But suffice it to say, it was it was biblical in in my approach. And um, I thought I was gonna be in the dissenting voice in the minority vote. And uh It went with Claudia, and she voted against it, which I knew she would, and I thought I'd be joining her, and it'd be a three to two vote. And then Al votes, and now I'm the swing vote, and I decide it's going to ruin it for these other folks. I thought I was going to vote, and it wasn't going to affect anyone. Well, now I have to make this decision. I'm burdened by it, and I knew what the Lord told me to do, and I I voted no, and I knew I'd be in opposition to the other two council members. Well, in the very first issue, both council members voted with me, so it was five nothing, which is unheard of, and especially for something like this that all the city planners really wanted. And um, and I was talking with Andy, who's to my left, and I was sharing some scriptures with him and talking about the Lord and just watching how there's a tenderness and what really set the whole evening, which was just unbelievable because there was tension in the room. I mean, the room was completely divided. And what set the tone of the entire evening was Ted Smith uh, over here. He gets up and in his public comment, as he sits through this enduring, exhausting meeting, he opens introducing himself and then opens for prayer and asking for wisdom from God for all of us and thanking the Lord for us. I could hear an audible groan from both sides of me of, of gratitude uh, from from the members up there. The the presence of the Lord affecting the decisions for the city, you, you can't dismiss that. And um, and so the decision was made. And, and when you get to glory, you'll know why I made the decision I made. God will go, I told him to. So you can take that up with him later. Um, and then the other thing that I wanted to ask prayer for is I leave tomorrow to go to South Carolina and then uh, I'm coming back Friday and I'm going to speak and I don't know if you followed the election but you had the Iowa caucus and I shared this with you I think it was last week Iowa caucus the way that the establishment operates is they look at who's going to win Iowa they pick the evangelical and then they target the evangelical and they know that the evangelical is going to lose in New Hampshire because there aren't any evangelicals in New Hampshire and then they go into South Carolina. They target the evangelical. They split the vote by putting up a, a, a shill um, who will split the vote, and then the uh, establishment candidate moves on. And that's how you ended up with uh, Dole, uh, McCain, and Romney. And and evangelicals don't understand the dynamics of it. Well, they're getting smarter. Uh, they said that that um, Trump would win in Iowa if the vote was over 130,000, which was the highest number of votes. It ended up being almost 190,000 and an 8.5% increase in evangelical turnout, which was already over 50% of the state. It's the highest of any state in the union for evangelical turnout. Another 8.5% above that, Cruz won by 4%. I'm, it's irrelevant what, who you're voting for. I'm talking about evangelicals. And then uh, you saw in the paper the following day that they were uh, awarding a victory to Rubio, who finished third. It was fantastic. Well, that's the establishment candidate. And then they want to divide the libertarians from the evangelicals, so they did this issue over Carson and Cruz. And then we go into New Hampshire, and who finished third in New Hampshire? Cruz did. Nobody talked about it, so it didn't even exist. To get 11% of an evangelical vote in New Hampshire is, is like experiencing snow in hell. It just it doesn't happen. <laughs> And uh, and now we're going into South Carolina, and this is going to be the bellwether state. And today, Fiorina and Christie backed out of the race. If Trump takes South Carolina, he's going to take the country. Um, and you have to really examine that. Um, and then um, the the rest of the candidates, they're, they're, hope, they're looking, and this is the first time in 16 years that the establishment, instead of pitting evangelicals against each other, the establishment is devouring itself because they don't know whether to go with Kasich, Rubio, Bush... They're lost, and they're struggling, and it's almost like a perfect storm. And for probably the first time in 16 years, California will be in play because you're going to have Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton battling it out all the way uh, because the democratic process, you get a a portion of the votes based on the percentage of votes you got. In the Republican side, it's winner takes all. So the the primary is going to go all the way to California in the democratic race, which means California has a jungle primary. Which means a Democrat can vote for a Republican a Republican can vote for a Democrat. Well, what's going to happen, because it's going to be so close in the Democratic race, Democrats are going to vote for Democrats, Republicans will vote for Republicans, and this could turn the tide uh, for both parties. So this state will be in play, which is the first time imaginable. And uh, we're going to uh, South Carolina to do another event. We've invited all the Republican candidates, as we always do. Uh, we're sad when they turn us down. I don't know why they do. They have a great opportunity to build a base. But uh, there just seems to be no desire from certain camps to want to participate in that. And we've invited all of them. So uh, we'll see how it goes. Um, and keep it in prayer. It's, it's, it's going to be um, probably the most important election in your lifetime. And if you're apathetic to it, you don't understand your responsibility as a Christian, your civic, di- civic responsibility, civic discipleship. And uh, if you have any questions, I'll answer them at the end. But I just want to give you an overview so you could keep it in prayer. Amen? All right. Tonight we're in Acts chapter 20. Um, we can start the recording because that's what goes on the radio. Acts chapter 20. Oh, and by the way, we just launched the radio program. It uh, started on Monday. Uh, Eleven states, or let's see. Eleven stations sixteen states across the country, so it 's kind of exciting. oh good hey <laughs> all right that that 's going to show up on the recording. Three people are thrilled uh, acts chapter twenty we 're going to pick up uh, this evening and this is this is one of the tragic but funny and ends up uh, in a good humored way. Um, and I I, I kind of look at this as, as um, an individual falling out of church, um, how you just fall out of fellowship and uh, what is needed to fall out of fellowship. And, I'm, I, you know, you do these um, uh, word plays, and, and here you're, you've got uh, dozing, declining, and dying. And that's what happens to a Christian who falls out of church. You begin to doze in service, and you're just bored and then you begin declining in your fervency for the Lord, and then you just die in your faith, and uh, you just become cold. And in the picture that I recall of the pastor that uh, congregant didn't attend, and he was a hermit, and his wife had died, and he lived up in the hills, and he'd stopped coming to church. He had no phone to connect him to anyone, and so the pastor went to go make a visit. He showed up, knocked on the door. There was no answer. He knew the man, so he let himself in. As he walked in, he saw the man sitting just sad by the fire and it was the only thing that was warm in the house. It was a glowing fire and he was just looking at the flames and the pastor pulled up a chair next to him and he kind of acknowledged his presence and he sat down quietly and he was a man of few words as was the pastor on visitations, not on Sundays like me. And, and the pastor looks at the fire and looks at the man. The man just kept looking at the fire and the pastor takes the tongs and he reaches in, he grabs a burning red hot coal, takes it out of the fire and puts it on the cold tiles right by the feet of the man. And they both began to look at this blazing, red-hot coal on the cold tile, and it started to get dark, and then cold, and dead. And the pastor picked it up, put it back in the fire, and it got red-hot again. And the man turned to the pastor and he said, I'll see you in church on Sunday. <laughs> um, in Hebrews 10.25, and we don't know who the author is, but we assume it's the Apostle Paul, and you don't have to turn there, just note it. Uh, it says, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is in the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So the author of Hebrews, again assuming it's the Apostle Paul, the author of Hebrews says that you don't forsake fellowshipping with the saints. You, you must assemble yourselves together. There's a need for fellowship. There's no such thing as uh, Lone Ranger Christians. And, and um, you start to, to doze in the service and your, your eyes become dull because you're not reading and you're falling asleep in your devotions. And usually dozing is a result of staying up too late or doing things you shouldn't have done and you have no time for the things of importance and you get tired and, and then you begin to decline in your fervency for the Lord because faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. If you're not in the word, you begin to, to, to doze and decline and then ultimately your faith just dies and the ember just grows cold your heart's cold towards others, you don't have fellowship, you alienate yourself, and all of this starts to take place. And we're going to see kind of an illustration of it in the passage in Acts chapter 20. So let's take a look together. Lord, we ask your blessing on the study of your word. And we ask that you would lead us into all truth, Holy Spirit, not just to understand it, but to apply it. In Jesus' name, amen. After the uproar had ceased, Now you remember what happened with the uproar. Great is Diana of the ephesians and they they began to chant her name and and uh, they were losing business and the silversmiths and all these things and and um, and so, after the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to macedonia now he 'd spent two years in this region more than any other place in Europe. He had poured into the di- into the disciples, and now he 's leaving for Macedonia, heading closer to Greece. And when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed three months. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So as always, there's a revival or a riot. People rise up and it's these the, the Jews that are in that region. They begin to uh, plot to come against Paul. Paul gets word of it, heads to Syria, but he decides to return through Macedonia. So he backtracks. And Sipater of Berea accompanied him to Asia. We don't know much about him. Aristarchus and Secondus of the Thessalonians and Gaius of Derby, And Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. And these are all cool names and it would be fun to have my name in the Bible. Especially following the Apostle Paul. We could spend time going into detail in each of these names. But I don't want to do that tonight. You can do it on your own. These men going ahead waited for us at Troas. Now you, you see the word us. So the person who's joined them now is Luke, who's the author of the book of Acts. He's also the book of Luke. He's the most prolific writer of the New Testament. He's rejoined Paul, and so he's using the term us because he's traveling with Paul once again. He's reaccompanied him, and then says, but we... Verse six, sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and in five days joined them at Troas where we stayed seven days. So Paul's heading back to Jerusalem to take this gift to the starving church in Jerusalem. He's purposed to do this. He's making a run through some of these regions. These men are traveling with him. Luke is back in his company. Paul's staying just a few days. He he enjoys the, uh, the day of unleavened bread and now he's seven days there in Troas. Now watch what happens in Troas. On the first day of the week, let's just stop for a moment on the first day of the week. This is very important to Christians because uh, we share this facility with Seventh-day Adventists. And Adventists believe that the day that you worship is the Sabbath day or the Shabbat, uh, which is what uh, Jews practice. Uh, sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday is the Shabbat, the Sabbath and that's what Jews recognize. And a lot of people say, well, you're not celebrating church on the right day. It's supposed to be in the Sabbath or the Shabbat. And and Ellen G. White and um, Seventh-day Adventists hold to this. And, and so they, they go to church. They look at church as the Sabbath. And it's, it's on a Saturday, sundown Friday <clears throat> to sundown Saturday. And they practice this, as do Jews around the world. So why is it that the Christian church... Uh, fellowships on a Sunday. What well, was the first day of the week? And for the first day of the week that would have been a Sunday and that's when the Christians began to meet. And so the Christians gather on the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread. <clears throat> break bread meant that they had communion. They were celebrating the Lord's Supper. They were participating in a church service and it was the first day of the week. So to say that that Christians must observe the Sabbath and, and even Simon, he's, he's a neat guy and uh liversage, he he says, "Yeah, we celebrate the Sabbath, but one day is like another day. And, and you know, you're, you're welcome to celebrate. And It's not so much the day that you participate in church; it's the attitude. For some of you, Wednesday night is the only church you can attend. You probably work on a weekend, maybe you don't. It's it's not the day; it can be special for each person. Just set a day aside where you have rest, and that's the idea." And so they break bread. Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. So there he is in Troas. He's got limited amount of time with them and he's got to impart deep truths into these disciples. He's not going to be able to stay, stay with them two years like he did in, in Ephesus. He doesn't have the time to spend with them. He's got to get them grounded and he's got to pour into them. So he begins to preach. And, uh, so it starts, uh, through the course of the day, they break bread, they go all the way through and Paul is preaching all the way until midnight. Now this, at this point is probably six hours that he's been preaching. So first of all, I don't want anyone in the room complaining on a Wednesday (laughs) night. He's preaching six hours, takes it all the way to midnight. Uh, the, the council meeting went to midnight. It was funny because we had to, Um, make a motion to extend the meeting because we, there's rules that we're not allowed to go past midnight. And we had to make a motion to extend it past midnight because we had more duties to follow after we had done the public hearing on the Oakmont facility. And uh, so Andy made the motion and then we took the vote and it was four to one. I voted against extending it. I wanted to go home to bed. And they all giggled. I thought it was cute. Um, And so, He's going on to midnight and, and it's one thing to have a debate in a public hearing where everybody's sharing and there's, there's a, a neat dynamic to it, but one man just speaking and speaking and speaking and speaking. And after a while, if you've ever heard a filibuster in the Senate or a filibuster done by any of the legislature, uh, it, after a while, it's even hard for the man to continue standing and finding things to talk about. I don't know that I could talk for six hours or have anything to say for six hours. I imagine Paul is just basically reading. And as he's reading the scripture, there's something will jump at him. He'll begin to share that. Uh, when Chuck Smith and Don McClure went to go help, uh, excuse me, when Don McClure and uh, John Corson went to go help Chuck Smith at Calvary Costa Mesa as Chuck was struggling and getting older, they came to shore up the ministry. And uh, so John was given uh, Wednesday nights, Don was given Sunday nights and Don was going through a series and uh, on the Beatitudes John Corson was going through the Psalms and uh, John was teaching through the Psalms and Chuck came to him on a Wednesday night and he said John you're not teaching enough Psalms on Wednesday night uh, you're, you're doing two or three Psalms a night you need to do uh, eight to ten and and John said uh, Chuck if I do eight to ten Psalms all I'm going to be able to do in the amount of time is read them and Chuck said so <laughs> it's the word of God and, and we love to hear ourselves, and here's what I'm doing, I'm talking, um, and he's, this is what Paul's doing, he's six hours of preaching, and while he's preaching his message up until midnight, there were many lamps in the upper room, there's no lights, no LED, no hot lamps, I mean, you know, these are a little bit warm, but now we have LEDs, it doesn't heat the room up, here they had, they, they didn't have any electrical lights, they had candles, what do candles do? They burn. What, what, how, do you, how do things burn? They require uh, fuel, oxygen. Uh, what do people breathe? Oxygen. So they need these candles to read their scriptures. Everybody's holding their little oil lamps, you know, and they're reading their scriptures or whatever they have available. Paul's got his, others have theirs, and the room is packed to capacity. The idea is it's a three-story structure, which means the, the lower sections are already filled, everybody's in the upper section, the place is packed. People are sitting in the windowsills. Um, I imagine this one fella is probably sitting in the windowsill just to get some fresh air because he's starting to fall asleep. I find that, that when I'm sitting in long meetings uh, and I'm just not able to keep my eyes open, I stand up and I'll stand behind my chair. I'll walk around the room. Uh, I'll go get a cup of coffee, just anything to stretch, keep active, focus, go stand by the window, whatever it is, stand in the back of the room. I'll do these things. Well, Paul's preaching till midnight, and, and Luke points out there weren't just lamps, there were many lamps, so the oxygen's depleted, everyone is you know, heavy-eyed, Paul's going on and on, and I, I, I'm shocked that there are no lamps in here, I'm thinking the oxygen level's low, I'm watching your eyes droop, and I'm thinking that's what's occurring, and they're gathering together, so the room is packed, the idea is that it's just completely filled with people, and in a window, verse 9, sat a certain young man named Eutychus. And he was sinking into a deep sleep and, and the idea of sinking into a deep sleep is the Greek word for hypnosis, hypnotized. He you know, when you're just you're 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 in between what the person's saying and it's tying in with a dream that you're having. Have you ever had that one? Just, oh yeah, oh no, no, no. <laughs> and you're kinda of there, but you're not there, and you're somewhere else, but you're hearing Paul's voice while you're riding a horse chasing and so anyways, it's and and is he sinking into this hypnotic deep sleep? And this is going towards he's bordering on REM sleep, which was fascinating because last night after we finished the public comments, the entire room cleared and everybody was gone, and there wasn't a soul remaining uh, in in the chambers, save but for one woman. And she sat down and, and the chief was Chief of Police was walking through, just making sure there was no you know anything suspicious in each of the aisles and Then the thing went off, and somebody had lost their phone, and he went and took it out to them and there 's one woman remaining, and she 's sitting in the second row of the chambers and in, and we have a couple city employees that are required to stay and they 're doing their best to stay awake and We all start laughing, and we look over, and this woman is. She's just out like a light, just ha ha ha. And this is the eutychus of the council. And and uh sinking into a deep sleep, at this point he's so hypnotized that he, he's overcome by sleep. It means he can't he can't fight it anymore. He just he just can't do it any anymore. I just I can't And then the snoring begins. I remember being in a driver's ed class in high school and watching these films. Just you know, you'd been out, you know, PE, and it was hot, and then the air conditioner was on, and you're just cool. And then the lights go down, the movie, and the man's voice, and you just and you're you're asleep. Well, I remember kind of, you know, I got to pay attention to this because I wanted to pass and won my license. And I'm, I'm paying attention, trying to stay awake. And this awful noise happens in the middle of the room. This girl just makes a screeching noise and slips out of her chair and falls to the ground. I'm thinking, you know, epileptic seizure. I run over to her. A bunch of people run over. She is sound asleep, snoring, snored herself out of the sleep. And uh, her life was miserable from that point on. I think she dropped out. I don't know. So he was overcome by sleep and Paul continued speaking. And that's it. It's like, that's the lullaby. Paul's voice had already gotten him to the hypnotic state. Paul's voice put him into a deep sleep and he was overcome by Paul's voice and Paul continues to speak. And at that moment, he, it's just, it's like this. Your, Your eyes are getting heavy. Grant, you're very tired. And the sound of my voice And then all of a sudden he falls asleep. And and not only does he fall asleep, look at what happens. He fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Well, that's an awful night. Paul preached someone to such boredom that they fell to their death. Come on, there's hope for every minister, right? He, he He just preached that guy to death. Just exhausted him. Absolutely to death. And we're going to do that tonight, I'm going to give you an illustration of it. (laughs) So you can imagine, you know, this sound asleep, and then all of a sudden, out the window, this guy goes. I've been uh, where you've seen people fall out windows. I remember a friend of mine, uh, his last name was McClure. He was a diver on our swim team. And he slept walked and and went off his balcony and shattered his face. Awful. Um, and, And the idea of someone falling out, and that's... Yeah, yeah. I get I, I'm not one who gets like flustered by stuff But when my kids or anyone I know or care about Gets to the edge Like of a cliff You know and they're oh I want to go see that That's just so and you're like no 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 And inside you're like oh And Michelle can testify to this When I see something just about to go bad I do two things either I'm going to laugh Or I just turn and go I don't even want to watch it I mean you know and other people are running I'm going let them go I'm just, I'll get it when it's finished And it just, I just can't, oh, man, oh. Michelle's all, stop it. You know, and and I make such a loud noise, it's almost as though I'm approving of their, I don't know why I brought that up. But he falls out of the window, and had he fallen out, that's what it was, had he fallen out, I probably wouldn't, oh, kind of like that. And down he goes, and you just hear a, and it's one of those hits where you know that his internal organs are crushed, his ribs are crushed, he's hit his head. You know, you've watched those kind of falls where you just know that person is not getting up. Three stories down, sound asleep, whack. Uh, Micah, uh, my son-in-law, f- fell off of a very high ladder while he was doing insulation, went to step, missed it, and just went straight back and uh, landed right on his chest. Should have broken his back. It's because he does all this lifting. I don't know if you've noticed. He's, he needs to take something for the swelling, but he's, he's, he's gotten bulky. And that's what saved his back, didn't allowed him not to break his spine because he landed on his muscles. Just went whap. And he had that big head of hair, which no serious, it didn't crush his skull. It went just like that. It was more like a that's what it was. That's what it that's what it was. And and Micah's, you know, Harris runs over, yeah, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Just knock the wind out of me, let's get back to work. Miraculous, anyways. This man, they go to pick him up, and he's just limp. Yeah, I mean, probably blood coming out of his nose, internal injuries, maybe blood coming out of his ears. I, I'm not that kind of a person that can, you know, diagnose that, but I imagine whatever they saw, they concluded he was dead. And this guy's not getting up. Bummer on the whole night, nobody uh, in church just ruined it, ruined church. The worship was great that night, the message was on fire, people were getting saved, they were growing in the Lord, and Eutychus has to fall out and die. Just a bummer of an evening, just awful. So let's close there and we'll pray. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) So Paul went down and fell on him, and embracing him, and by the way, this is what you would call in the scriptures the gift of faith. To every man is given a measure of faith. Uh, Chuck Smith described it to his son one time that he went up to a man uh, that, that uh, I, I think was crippled. I don't remember what it was. And he went over and he prayed for this person and the person was healed. And his son witnessed that. He just prayed for him. The person was healed. Miraculous healing. And another person came to church and had the same ailment and Chuck didn't pray for him. And his son later asked, Daddy, why didn't you pray for him? He said, God didn't call me to. Uh, it, it's this gift of faith where God says this guy now and um, uh, I've had that on occasion where I, I know God's called me to pray for that person for that specific thing I've seen the gift of healing um, it's not something that I possess where I'm going to go on circuit and blow on people and comb my hair funny and wear neat suits but it it, it is it, it is a, a gift it's a gift of the Lord it's one of those things I, I don't know how it's done I don't know why God does it for some and not for others. The scripture says that the Lord healed many, but not all. And ultimately in a fallen world, we're going to die of the last disease we had, right? And he's going to heal us, but it's, it's, the, I'll tell you what a perfect healing is. You want a healing? How about a brand new body eternal in the heavens? Hallelujah. And some people are like, I don't want that right now. I, I'm, I got lots to do here and I don't want to be leaving here. But hallelujah, I'm glad. And we can arrange that tonight. Anyways, I'm saying that, no, I'm, yeah, we won't do that. Um, but but here, a uh, you know, body, brand new body eternal in the heavens. Well, Paul go, falls down, and he fell on him, and he embraced him. So it's this idea of just encompassing him with his body. A lot like uh, Elisha, you know, when he prayed for the widow's son at Nain, he, he laid on him face to face and body to body and, and, and breathed into him, and he, he came to life. And here Paul embraces him, and as he holds him, he, he just sends from the Lord to declare to the people who are present to state what he was about to state. Now, be careful when you say something like that, because the parents are around, everybody's weeping, everybody's overwhelmed, right? And don't give false hope. If God didn't tell you, don't open your mouth. Don't try to be, you know, a superhero. And, and Paul lets these words leave his mouth, and it had to have been by faith. He says, do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. Pretty bold statement. Some people say, well, he heard a heartbeat. Some people said, well, whatever it was, Paul says, do not trouble yourselves for his life is is in him. Now, when he had come up, uh, now, when he had come up, had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till daybreak, he departed. And they brought the young man in alive and they were not a little comforted, meaning they were very comforted. It's a play on words. They were overjoyed. And that put the cap on the evening. Paul talked a little while longer Studley preacher, preaches till midnight, guy falls to his death. He says, he's alive. Let's get back. Now they, he didn't walk back in with him, people were still tending to him. Paul goes back in, finishes his sermon and then breaks bread, does communion. That's gutsy. And he finishes the communion, finishes the, the sermon. And it, look, it, it says he talked a long while. It was midnight when the guy fell out of the window. Paul talks a long while. What's a long while? Daybreak? I don't know about you but unleavened bread that would put it in the it's probably about 6 something in the morning that's a long sermon Chuck used to preach for 3 hours during the Jesus movement all these hippies would come in and he'd go through books and books and books and books of the Bible, and they couldn't get enough. And they're turning and highlighting and turning and highlighting, going back and preaching and sharing and growing, and there was a hunger for the word, and I can't get people to bring their Bible to church, let alone crack it and read it and take it back to share with somebody else. And they're like, come on, cut it. I gotta get to the football game. And all these things happen, and I love this illustration. One pastor who was an avid sports fan said he gave up on sports, and he listed the reasons why. And then here's here's for those who... Get bored of church. And those of you who are dozing and declining and dying, this pastor had given up on sports as an avid sports fan. He, sports fan. He listed the reasons why. He said, Every time I went, they asked me for money at a game. The people with whom I had sat didn't seem to be very friendly, the seats were too hard and not at all comfortable. I went to many games, but the coach never came to call on me. The referee made a decision with which I could not agree. I suspected that I was sitting with some hypocrites. The people came to see their friends and what others were wearing rather than to see the game. Some games went into overtime and I was late getting home. The band played some numbers that I had never heard before. It seems that the games were scheduled when I want to do other things. I was taken to too many games by my parents when I was growing up. And I don't want to take my children to any games because I want them to choose for themselves what sports they like best. Sound familiar? This is a person who's dozing and declining and then ultimately dying. He fell out of the window. And to fall out of the window, he already had to be leaning out of the window. I think about folks in the body of Christ that, you know, you, you get to a place where you're already kind of leaning out of the church. I've been preaching in this fellowship for 15 years and I can tell you right now, take the entire role on a Sunday morning, Wednesday night and Sunday night, combine it, and it's probably one fiftieth of the number of people that are no longer attending this church that used to. I run more people that used to attend the church than attend the church. And that's, and those are folks that have done that with all the churches, and you get to a place where I just—I don't want to do it anymore. And I have to tell you, Wednesday nights will get seriously boring if all you are doing is studying. If you're not feeding or participating or engaging, and the idea when it says in, in Hebrews ten to do not forsake fellowship with the saints, fellowship means to invest in the lives of others. Let me just ask you: what what people have you poured into, and what lives have you touched? And what ministries are you participating in? Because if you're not, and all you're doing is sitting in a room where all the oxygen is being sucked out, listening to a message, you are beginning to doze and decline, and ultimately you'll die. You've got to participate. Fellowshiping means to engage. also means to walk in, in clarity and honesty. And, um, and this man was brought back to life, and everyone who's walked away from the church can be brought back to life. And people rejoice when they see you walk through the doors, and it's always fun. And, and this is the other thing. Maybe the list is, you know, 10 times those who aren't attending that, that are attending. But I'd say this. In the 15 years I've been the pastor, I've watched people boomerang back in. And when they boomerang back in, they go, well, I had an issue with you, or I had an issue with that person, or I had an issue with the," death. And they went out there on their own trying to figure it out and just got... cul-de-sac or got waylaid and finally just got broken and said, as much as I tried to live outside, I just didn't work and I'm happy to be back. And they come to appreciate the fellowship that much better. And that's why, that's why the apostles and why the Lord says that if there are those in the body of Christ that, and as we studied on, on Sunday morning with this idea of a carnal Christian, if there are those that are engaging in, in, in this life and, you know, they're, they're going to, they're going to doze and they're going to decline and they're, fervency for the Lord. They're not cracking the Bible. Their, their, their friendships are starting to disintegrate because of the way they're living and your sins will find you out. And, you know, everything rises to the surface and all things are laid bare before the eyes of God. And as all this starts to happen, the, the Lord says, cast them out. Let, let them see what life is like outside the fellowship. Don't, you know, people like to remain in the home of their family, even though they're in and sin. And the reason why is because they know they're going to get a meal. They know they have a bed. They're not contributing to it. As a matter of fact, they're probably stealing and they're probably cheating and they're probably lying, but they're enjoying the comforts of the work somebody else is doing. And that's why the Lord says, get them out so they can see the consequences of their actions and try to survive in the world with the actions that you're applying in the church. It won't work. And love hopes all things, and you can play one Christian against another and do that kind of gimmick. But God says, put them out so they can see. And, and ultimately, they come back to life. And Eutychus, in that sense, figuratively speaking, he comes back to life and everybody rejoices. And, and that's the prodigal son. We rejoice when they, when they come back. There's a joy in our hearts in relation to that. So they were not a little comforted. Uh, verse 13. Then we went ahead uh, to the ship and sailed to Assos. Asos, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, and I could get in trouble with some of the pronunciation, so I'll move on. They're intending to take Paul on board, for so he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. And when, we met, uh, when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and came to uh, Mytilene. And we sailed from there, and the next day came opposite Chios. And the following day we arrived at Samos and stayed at uh, Trogilium, and the next day we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia. He had spent two years in Ephesus. He wants to sail past Ephesus. He goes about 30 miles distance from Ephesus. And you know Ephesus is a port city. He goes about 30 miles past Ephesus. Because he knows if he lands in Ephesus on his return going to Jerusalem, he's going to be delayed because everybody in that church loves him. And I don't know about you, but if you've been in a city a long time, And then you go to visit that city. You've got to cycle through to visit everybody. When Michelle and I first left Fresno and we come back for a visit, we had to go say hi to all the people and everybody wanted to meet with us and schedule an appointment. we were in San Jose, same thing when we come back. Are you going to, oh, can I? And then, and it's just, there's no vacation time. You're going to be spending it with all these people who want to reconnect with you. And and that's kind of how it is. Well, Paul knew. I had been there two years. He's going to Jerusalem. It had been prophesied that he was going to be killed. He knew what awaited him. They probably thought they'd never see him again. Again, he didn't necessarily want to go back into the city and delay his journey because God had called him to go to Jerusalem with this offering. So he he gets off the ship about thirty miles past Ephesus, so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem if possible on the day of Pentecost. Verse seventeen. From Miletus, which is 32 miles from Ephesus he, sent Ephesus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. So what he said is, I don't want to necessarily go and be with all the disciples and have to answer all the questions and go through all the, you know, hermeneutics and everything else and go through the exegetical studies and answer the endless questions about apologetics and all the questions people are going to have and deal with the disputes in the church and try to say, just bring the elders on. I'm going to pour into those guys and then they can head back. And so he calls for the elders and... It speaks highly of Paul that they, they got word of it. So the, the fellow has to go 32 miles to, my, to Ephesus from Miletus to tell them, Paul wants to meet with you. They obviously have to drop everything, traveling at three miles an hour, walking. It's about 10-hour walk, I guess. But if you're running, you, we cut that in half. That's a journey. And so they, they, they huff it over there, 32 miles to meet with Paul. Verse 18 And when they had come to them, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility and with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. How I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly from house to house. And so many people today say, well, the church gathering in a large facility like this is not biblical, it should be house to house churches. It, obviously the church in Ephesus didn't have a general meeting area. Well, one of the reasons they didn't have a general meeting area is they didn't have a synagogue and, and it was very uh, anti-Semitic and they would have gathered in a large facility had they had one, but they met house to house. And to say that churches can't be large, that doesn't work that way. And the apostle Paul pours into them, and what he's telling them is, "Look, uh, I'm going to tell you guys something, and I want you to see this because you're leaders." And it's kind of how the the Lord did it. He had his three, his twelve, his seventy, and his multitude. The three, uh, he would bring them in for certain aspects. Um, he would, you know, like uh, the the healing of of uh, uh, Jarius' daughter. Um, He brought them in for a number of of miracles that the other 12 didn't get a chance to see. So you had Peter, James, and John, who were the three. Uh, They were up on the Mount of Transfiguration. They witnessed that. Uh, Then you had the 12, which were all the disciples. And and the Lord, you know, sent them out and and treated them differently than he did the 70. And the 70 were disciples, but they weren't apostles. And these 70 had special callings, and they went out in twos and and cast out demons. And they had all kinds of, of effective ministry. And then he had a ministry to the multitudes. So he had a specific ministry to the three, he had a specific ministry to the 12, he had a specific ministry to the 70, he had a specific ministry to the multitudes. And, and the application for us is, who are your three, who are your 12, who are your 70, who are your multitudes? Because you're, you're working in this large, you know, concentric circles, moving out, almost like a pebble in a pond, touching the community. So Paul calls for these these elders because he's going to pour into them. They're they're more like maybe the three or the twelve. And as he's pouring into them, he is sharing with them what is required if you want to go deep into ministry. I don't think people get that. You know, Jesus said, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So, so you, you can say, I want to follow the Lord. I want to commit my life to him. And then it gets a little hard and, and, uh, you know, the tides turn and you face a little opposition, you get beat up and we're following Paul's life as dictated by Luke, who was a physician. Luke's writing it down because he's the one who's always going to sew up Paul's head from the pounding with the, the sticks and the stoning and the, you know, the beatings. And he's, he's, mending all the cuff marks from, from the chains and his ankles and, and, uh, trying to help him with his blindness and, and, you know, ministering to him. And, and Luke's patching this guy up and you can imagine as he's seated in front of the disciples that have traveled 32 miles to be with him, he's probably limping. He's probably, you know, arthritic. Uh, he's, he's bent over. He's, he's decrepit, more than likely blind. And he's speaking to them. And as he's saying, he says, you know what manner I always lived among you? And they're like, yeah, we, 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 uh, we do. We have. We saw it. Every time you preached, we saw the scars on your face. We saw the beatings that you endured. Serving the Lord with all humility. He didn't say, do you know who I am? How dare you beat me? How dare you do these things? Paul, Paul never got above his station in life. Far more educated than any single person in this room. Spoke more languages than any person in this room. Probably combined, probably spoke more languages than all of us in the room. Had the equivalent of a law degree, multiple degrees. Never considered himself higher than anyone else. And he says, I, I, I live with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. The people that I love the most were the ones who wanted to do the most harm to me. And I love them. And with tears eh, I, I, and trials, you know all these things. I proclaimed it to you. I taught you publicly from house to house the word of God. I was faithful to the, to the testimony of the Lord, testifying to Jews and also the Greeks, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. What does repentance mean? It means you're walking away from God. It means to turn 180 degrees and embrace the Lord. How do you embrace him? If you're distant from God, the only way to get back to God, to have peace with God is to have the peace of God. Peace with God is through Jesus Christ. And and he says the way that, that you have faith toward our Lord, our uh, repentance towards God, faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ, because you can turn and face God the Father, because you have the covering and the forgiveness of Jesus, His Son. And Paul said that was the gospel I preached to you. I continued to do that. And he said in verse twenty two, and see now I'm going bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there. I I I can only imagine what awaits me in Jerusalem. When I get back to that city, and they heard the fact that I abandoned this mission that they'd called me to go persecute Christians, and I went there, and I walk back into that city, I, I can only imagine what awaits me. And those folks have taken torture and beating to a whole new level. And I'm going into a capital city where the last thing they want is a person of the way who used to be, a, you know, a, a Pharisee and, and now abandoned. And I was, I was their, you know, their their silver prince and the one that they wanted to further on after Gamaliel and, and all the other, you know, high Pharisees and, and to be the Pharisee of all of Israel. And I, I I can only imagine what awaits me there is kind of the description of what Paul's saying. I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there. But verse 23, he says, I can imagine, I don't know, I don't want to stay there, except he says that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city saying that chains and tribulations await me. Um, Lord, I just I really feel i I know you 're calling me in Jerusalem, could you just kind of give me an idea of what awaits me there and the lord the the lord 's like it 's like whoopopching you 're like close turn it off i don't want to see it anymore there 's no more i don 't want to, oh God, oh god <laughs> i don 't want to do that. Now the fascinating thing is the Lord wouldn't reveal to Paul earlier on in his, in his ministry what awaited him. And now the Lord is saying, this is all that awaits you. You are going to get the daylights beaten out of you everywhere you go. You ready for this? You know, the, the young man who came to the Lord and said, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. And I said it earlier. And the Lord said, foxes have holes, birds of the ear have nests. The son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He says, Lord, go, let me go bury my father. He says, let the dead bury the dead. Any man putting his hand to the plow looking back is not fit for the kingdom of heaven. And you want to talk about seeker sensitive? The Lord whittled that congregation down to nothing. Because you imagine a seeker sensitive Sunday. Hey, everybody, listen. The minute you don't have a pillow, you're going to quit. So why don't you just go now? And you know what? If you want to go bury your parents, you're not fit for the kingdom of heaven. You want to put your hand in the plow looking back, why don't you do something else? Because this, this is a call to sacrifice. And all that awaits you are chains and beatings. Who's in? (laughs) Now, for us, it's hard to imagine that in Western world because we don't go through that. But our brothers and sisters being beheaded in the 1040 window of the Muslim world. And, And here... Paul just points out to all these elders, he said, this is the call if you're, and, and I would just simply say this, in a postmodern culture, especially for the millennials, you know, you want to be hip and relevant. I got news for you, Christianity is going to fade the, to the wayside with your hip and relevant. Amen. You, you, you want to see the world change? Why don't you get radical? Why don't you abandon fear, fear of man, and step into the fray and go for it? And truth is going to be conflicting. Truth will be hard. Truth will be difficult to testify to. Tribulations will await you. Change will await you. Verse 24, but none of these things, and this is what Paul said. This is his mission statement. Listen to it. It's my pastor Don McClure's favorite verse. It's his life verse. I'll share it with you briefly about his testimony. Verse 24, Paul says, but none, and the word none in the Greek means none, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy, and the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Uh, Don McClure shared this verse that God had given him when he was a young man. He was in a, a sports car, and he was racing down, and he was a wild, crazy college guy. And he gets hit by a Buick 88 uh, back in the day, and Don's in his 60s now, I think, and you can imagine how big that car was back then. This Buick 88 hits this foreign uh, you know, convertible and just just bends it, <laughs> And just devastates it. And the thing is just wiped out. It's eviscerated. And, and Don finds himself unscathed getting out of the wreck and sitting at the side of the curb and looking at this crumpled wreck of his car. And the Buick 88's like, ah, what was that? Just wiped out. Police arrive at the scene. And the police officer comes out and says, who was in the car? Who was in that car? Asking Don. He goes, I was. He goes, no, no, quit messing with me. Who was in the car? He says, I was. He says, you couldn't have been in that car. To, I'm only gonna ask you who was in the car. He says, I was, I was in the car. He looks at me and he says, I don't know. He says, that's a miracle, son. And Don went home that night and just realized, you know, God, I've been running from you. And in and and, and that moment, he gave his heart to the Lord and he just began reading and he didn't know what to do. And he said, God, what, I just wanna serve you. And he just started reading, and he he came to this verse in the course of the evening, and it so spoke to him. He he read it, and he didn't know much about the Apostle Paul. He had read through the book of Acts and saw this guy being intense, and he thought, this guy's got chutzpah, you know. And and he gets to this verse, and it just lit up his life. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself. Because Don pointed out, he said, at that stage in my life as a young man, filled with passion, everything moved me. A cute girl moved me. The opportunity to get drunk moved me. Drugs moved me. They all moved me. I was not in control of my life. Anything that occupied any area of, of deviance moved me. I, I had no idea what it was to say. None of these things moved me. Everything moved me. I had no control. I had no, no ability to, to orchestrate the members of my body for the glory of God. The things I wanted to, I didn't do. We've studied this. And Don said, everything moved me. I'm reading about a man that none of these things moved him. None of them moved him. And the things that didn't move him were fear. He wasn't moved by fear. He wasn't moved by tribulation. He wasn't moved by chains and imprisonment and persecution. Why? Because he didn't count his life dear to himself. Don said, that's all I counted dear was my life. I could have cared about everybody else. I lived for me. It was all about me. I would do whatever I could for me, no matter what it did to anyone else. If I wanted, I took it, and I don't care who it hurt. he said, and I came to this place where none of these things moved me because I didn't count my life dear to myself. I died. And he surrendered that night. He said, so that I might finish my race with joy. Paul would always talk about these competing races. And he said, that I might finish this race with joy. And that's what the li- that's what life is, finishing a race. Let me ask you this: If you're going to run in a race, would you would you take your most prized possessions with you in a suitcase to run next to the guy who's just a picture? <laughs> he says that I might finish my race with joy, the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And God said, "That's my life verse." And he memorized it, and he owned it. And um, and at that point and I'm gonna stop there, I'll finish the rest later, but at that point, Don went through his life and struggled at Bible college and met Gene, and and they, they went to Bible college together and struggled through the ministry and all these challenges and trials, and he always wanted a challenge, he always wanted a difficulty. He got um, Calvary Chapel Arrowhead up to this banner size, and he, he wanted another challenge, so he turned it over to his assistant pastor, and he went down into Redlands to do a home study, Uh, Built this church into this mega church, you know, and and had a high school and a junior high and an elementary school and a preschool, had acres of land, ended up getting the water rights. The the church was completely paid for. They were busting at the seams. He he just got to a place where he said, I got to have something else. This is, I want, I I don't want to sit here and rot. I want to do things for the Lord. I don't count my life dear to myself. I've gotten to a place of comfort. I don't like comfort. I want to be challenged. I want to be, I want to be. And he called up Chuck and he said, Chuck, I, I, do you have anything? I I just, I'm, I'm at that place again. And Chuck said, well, we got this thing in San Jose. I don't know if you want a guy that, Assembly's a God preacher, and uh, they, they, they bought all the, this stuff to do a build-out, and the church is in disarray, and they're in financial ruin, and they're gonna be in the front page of the San Jose Mercury News because they spent the principle of money that elderly congregants had given for return on their investment, and they're, they're facing uh, jail time. And the guy called us in desperation to try to get a church, a Calvary Chapel, planted in the north where we don't have a lot of them. He says, That's it. He says, I want that. He says, Well, Don, I just want to tell you, I told John Corson about it. John got saved in that church, and he goes, Okay, okay, don't say anything to John. Let him go look through. If John turns it down, I'll take it. And John walked through the church, and by that time, a church of about 7,000 dwindled down to less than 500. Uh, 11 acres of property. It was all in disarray. People had stolen things. It was awful. Weeds were growing up everywhere. John walked through the building and he said, "Ichabod, the glory's departed." He called Chuck. He said, "This this place is a, a pit. You don't you don't want anything to do with this place." And he calls uh, Chuck. Calls Don and says, "John said, Ichabod." Don goes, "I'll take it." And Don shows up and the church was millions of dollars in debt, less than 500 people remaining in the church. The Sunday that Don preached, he told the people up in the balcony to come down to the lower section and close the balcony to kind of get everyone together. People were upset they left the church. People were running down the aisles with banners and Don said, we're not going to do the banners anymore. Those people left the church. By the time he was finished, the church of 500, he'd gotten it down to 300. Chuck loaned money. They shored up the debt of the people that were in the rest home. Don, uh, you know, took uh, a lien on his home to cover everything and the elders saw it shored up, and they wanted to call the old pastor back. Don resigned, came home, said, the debt's on us, Gene, and uh, they've, they've kicked me out, and they want the pastor to come back. And Gene said, what, what have we done? He says, let's just pray. And they began to pray, and the elders called back, and said, we're in sin, we're sorry, would you come back, because the elders had fought. And and Don comes back in, and here this church is just a mess, and I remember I got there just shortly after that, and Michelle and I did, and, and it was one of the hardest places I've ever worked. Lived in a windowless apartment, and... Watched in that period of time as God used Don to plant multiple churches in the Bay Area. That church now is sitting on three million dollars in the bank. The property is completely paid for. It's totally refurbished. They've got a, a private school and a and they've got a children's ministry and a daycare. And a, it's it's reached the Silicon Valley for Christ. It's one of the last vestiges of strength in the North. And God used Don to do that. And in the process of time, I was rising and Don would have me speak on Sunday mornings. And all of a sudden, Don um, uh, had a, uh, a blood clot in the lower lobe of his lung. Went in for surgery and they took out that lower section of his lung. And it was devastating. And uh, to recover, he was running on a treadmill trying to lose weight after he had gone through all this surgery. And all of a sudden, he noticed he was, his vision was fuzzy in his right eye. And... Uh, and he just, he had had um, a stroke, I think, and he was blinded in his right eye, never to return. And, and, and he was struggling. He lost vision in his right eye. He lost the lower, lower lobe of his lung. Then his back went out, and he had arthritis, and he couldn't walk. And he, All these things were breaking. Knees were starting to go out. And, and he was just sitting there one day just saying, God, I didn't think you were going to take me piece by piece. You know, I don't count my life dear to myself that I might finish the race and the high calling what the Lord's calling to. And I was thinking, you're going to take me all at once, but not piece by piece. Lord, my, my, my vision's gone in my right eye. I'm struggling over this. And he, he, the Lord just brought him back to this verse and reminded him of the verse. And Don's heart settled. And he, he would always close his testimony sharing out of Acts 20, 24. And he'd always say this. He goes, I can envision when I get to heaven and, and I, I want to know why God took my eye and the lower lobe of my lung. And I, I just, I, I, I was upset about that. And I'm going to go to the Lord and I, I got questions for you. And God says, oh, uh, St. Peter says, you got questions? Yes, I want to know why I was blinded, why I had to operate with only one eyeball. Not even my right, which I, I don't even have depth perceptions, hard to drive at night. How it affected my ministry. I served you and you took this from me. It's hard to breathe, and when I'm at altitude at these retreats, I I need assistance. It's hard to sleep at night. And St. Peter will go, Oh, complaints are over in this room. And he goes over to that room, and as he goes into the room, there's there's John the Baptist and Isaiah. And John the Baptist, who is beheaded, he's holding his head in his hand. (laughs) Isaiah, who was cut asunder, which means he was cut in half, is beside himself. (laughs) And they come in and they go, What's your problem? you know you can see John the Baptist going what's your problem and Don's like uh, was, you know, never mind time to move right on you know and Peter crucified upside. I mean we go on and on and on and all things will be made known when you get to heaven I, he's got to figure it out I don't know the struggle um, there's nine minutes let me just close with this so we can ask questions and I'll finish the last passage later I was talking with a brother, and I'm going to share this on Sunday so you can have a preview of it, but Romans 8.28, which we're going to cover on Sunday morning, all things work together for good with those who love the Lord and are called according to His purpose. All things. Everyone say all. all. The word all means all. So I was sitting with a brother who um, attended a Catholic church, and the priest molested him. All things work together for good. Sitting with him, he says, you know, I always wondered why God allowed that to happen. And the pictures of it would come back and haunt me. And I walked away from the church, and I was a mess. He said, and the Lord got a hold of my heart, and I remember the day I asked God to forgive him and everyone who let that happen. He said, and it all occurred because God gave me a dream. It was almost like a movie. He said, in my dream, I had gone back in a time machine and stopped that from happening. He said, and then I woke up in my dream, and I was next to, I think he said the girl's name was Maya, who wasn't my wife, but I had married her, who was my girlfriend at the time. And surrounding me was drug paraphernalia. I went in to go see if the kids were all right and they weren't there. That, that, that part of my life didn't exist. He said, then I woke up, having woke up, I woke up for real and, my, and I saw my wife next to me and my children in the room and I realized this venture of faith and the struggles that I went through was a crucible to bring me to a place that I would have never been on my own. He said, when I forgave that man and everyone involved, he said, you know what happened? He said, that priest came to Christ, repented, and assisted all of the folks through the, re- the remainder of his life. And I was able to say to his face, I forgive you. There isn't, there isn't any guile in that man. He's blessed with the sweetest wife you can imagine, the most lovely kids. He's a precious brother in this fellowship and the way the Lord's used him. You know, whether you lose sight in your right eye or the lower lobe of your lung or something bad happens to you, none of these things move me. Apostle Paul took time to tell these elders at the church at Ephesus, you ready for that? Or are you just coming to a study on Wednesday night because you're bored? You ready for that? Because this is what it's gonna take in a darkening world. What moves you? Are you able to get to that place where you say, none of these things move me? Except the Lord.